small town in western Canada and Alberta called Tabor. And the church I grew up in had about 20 people in it. It was a very, very small church. And most of those people were over the age of 60, so I didn't really have a lot of friends in church. And my mom, my mom and dad were very, very intent on me always being in church. I know many of you have probably heard me tell stories of my early church days. Uh, one thing that stuck out for me, I never really got worship songs. I never, they never really made any sense to me at all uh, when I was a little kid. I would stand there and sing because that's what my mom required me to do. And I was just kind of biding time until lunch. That's what church was like for me. And I'd show up sometimes, and I'd be sitting there, and in my mind, I'd be creating all kinds of games. Um, I'd be pretending that I was Spider-Man. And for one reason or another, I'd take the pencils that we'd get sometimes to write things, and I'd tuck it into my wrist, or into my, uh, <laughs> into my wrist, that hurt. Uh, into my watch band, and I thought that that was like my web shooter. And so my dad's up there preaching, and there I am in the seats doing this, you know. And I was very, very distracting for all the people around me and all that stuff. But it was hard to shake that mentality. I go to church because it's what's required of me. I go to church because I need to do something Sunday morning for a few hours. I need to church, go to church because it's something wholesome and good. There's some other reason that exists for why we gather. Jesus wanted to make sure that his disciples understood this. He really did. And in John chapter 4, we actually come across a story about what it means to come and to worship. Now, Jesus and his disciples were passing through a region called Samaria. They're right outside of a small town called Sychar. Very small town. And they happened upon a very famous place. It was a place called Jacob's Well. It had been there for hundreds upon hundreds of years. Now Jesus was very tired from the journey, so he sat down at the side of Jacob's Well. And the disciples stopped, and they were talking amongst themselves. They realized that it was just about noon. It was right around time to eat. And so they looked around, and they saw that the town was only about a kilometer down the road, so they decided to continue on. Now, Jesus was already resting and sitting there, and they looked at him. He seemed so peaceful. He seemed to be praying. He did this from time to time. And so they discussed it amongst themselves and decided just to leave Jesus there. They'd come back and bring him food as a work of service to him. And so all the disciples take off, and they go down the road, and they're headed on to Sychar. And just as they get out of earshot of Jesus, a woman shows up from around the bend. She's carrying with her a jar of water on top of her head. She's coming to the well to draw water from the well. And as she comes around the corner, she sees Jesus sitting there, and their gaze meets for a second. And she stops dead in her tracks. No one's supposed to be here, she thinks. It's just about noon. It's just about the hottest point of the day. No one is supposed to be here. And yet, here's a man sitting here. It's not okay for men and women to be alone in these types of situations in that culture. So she stops, and she sizes him up. And from where he's sitting, he looks over at her, and he smiles and nods. And so she figures, okay, this must be all right. And so she walks over to the well, takes the jar down, and begins to draw water up out of the well. While she's doing this, Jesus just looks up at her and asks for a drink of water. She looks at him, kind of astonished. She says, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And Jesus paused for a moment and nodded. And he looked at her in that way that only Jesus can do. He said, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who it was that asked you, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. She looks at him, looks around the well. She's like... 
You don't have anything to draw water with. You don't have a cup, you don't have a bucket, let alone a pickaxe and a shovel. What are you going to do, dig a new well? Are you greater than Jacob, our father, who built this well? Jesus shakes his head, he looks at the well, he says, No, anybody who drinks this water is going to be thirsty again. But anyone who drinks what I give will have eternal life. She looks at him and says, Give me some of this water. I don't want to be thirsty again. I don't want to keep coming back here to draw water. Give me some of this water. He replies, go call your husband. We're going to do this all together. Now at this, she takes a step back. She's very concerned at this point. The joy drains out of the conversation. And she gets dead serious. I have no he says, you're right. You're right when you say you have no husband. In fact, you've had five husbands. And the man that you're with right now is not your husband either, is he? And at that moment, she realized that she was dealing with a situation that she never encountered before. You're, you're a prophet, she said. And then, whether or not she wanted to deflect the conversation away from her personal life, or whether she genuinely had a deep theological question to ask, she started talking about the only thing she knew to talk about with someone who was from God. And she said, our forefathers, our forefathers came and worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews, you say the only place we can worship is down in Jerusalem. And she's about to continue arguing, and Jesus cuts her off. He says, believe me, there's a time coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. A time is coming and has now come where God's true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, he said, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. She's astonished. You see, when she brought up the, the worship practices, she thought he was going to argue with her. She thought that he, a man of God, was going to tell her that once again, her faith, her religion, who she is, everything was wrong, and that she'd have to come and do what he wanted her to do. But instead, he invited her to go off and to join a new form of worship, to do worship in a completely different way. And in her mind, she realized there's only one person that has that kind of authority. And she says... I know the one called the Messiah, the Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain all of this to us. And at that, Jesus got up from where he was sitting, took two steps over to her, leaned in close, and said, I have been speaking to you. Now, like I said, the story is found in John chapter there is so much in that story, and it goes on for quite a while after this as well. But I'm afraid if we continue talking about this story, we're going to lose something important if we don't understand who the people speaking are and where they've come from. Now, we've been studying through the book called The Story, which is the chronological chapters of the Bible put together so that it reads as one complete story. And we're in chapter 19. And this chapter actually takes place quite a few hundred years before Jesus meets this Samaritan woman. Now remember, 
the kingdom of Israel, the Israel under David and Solomon, had broken up in a civil war. And they had broken into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which called themselves Israel, and the southern kingdom, which called themselves Judah. The northern kingdom's capital was a place called Samaria, and the southern kingdom's capital was a place called Jerusalem, and it had the temple. Now the northern kingdomers, they didn't have access to this temple since the days of Solomon. It had been hundreds of years since they had had access to the temple. And they had developed all kinds of worship practices. And unfortunately, they forgot that God had made a covenant with them. Do you remember the covenant? What God said? He said, if you obey my commands, if you love me, I will protect you. I will honor you. I will, I will grow you up. I will feed you. I will keep you healthy. I will do everything I can for you if you obey me and follow my commands. Then he said, if you do not obey me, if you do not follow my commands, I'm just simply going to remove my hand from you. And you'll be susceptible to everybody that's around you. So follow my commands and love me. Not one king in the northern kingdom in their entire history got it right. Not one king was interested in bringing the people closer to God. Every single king in the northern kingdom encouraged them to worship other idols, encouraged them to worship other gods, brought in all kinds of practices that were wrong. And so God allowed a giant empire called the Assyrians to come in and to wipe them out. He didn't kill all of them, but he took many of them away in exile, scattered all over the Middle East. Now, the southern kingdom, Judah, they fared a little bit better. They had a few kings that were actually concerned with God. They had a few kings that brought the people back to obedience to God. But ultimately, they had more kings that were not going to do that. And so eventually, God took his hand of protection away from them too. And a new empire, an empire called the Babylonians, came in and conquered all of the Assyrian Empire, and then came and conquered Jerusalem as well. And they did the same thing. They carried away people off into exile. Now there were some people that were left. Not everybody was taken away. There were some people that were left. When the Babylonians came in and destroyed, or took over Jerusalem, they destroyed it. They wiped it off the face of the earth. They took down every single wall. They demolished the houses. They burned the place. And they destroyed the temple. And the Israelites, the only place that they could worship, according to God, was at the temple, and that was gone. So for an entire generation, those people had nowhere to worship. They were spread out all over the Middle East. They couldn't even get back to the place where they were supposed to worship. This was a huge problem. But the people that were left in Samaria, they had places to worship. Now, they were leaderless. And now they lost a major ally in the southern kingdom. So what did they do? They turned to all the peoples that were around them. They were still under the thumb of the Babylonian Empire. But they turned to the other peoples and they started marrying into the other nations that were around. They started allowing even more practices to come in. And since Jerusalem was gone, Samaria, the capital of that northern kingdom, became a much more important place. You see, all the trade routes used to go through the southern kingdom of Jerusalem. But now they moved north to Samaria, where there was a population, where there was commerce to be had. And these people actually became an important place in that empire. And then one day, a new empire came to town. This was called the Persian Empire. Now, if you've ever taken ancient history, I really suggest reading up on these three empires. They were fascinating. But maybe that's just me because I'm a big geek. The Persian 
Persian Empire had its first great king called Cyrus the Great. Cyrus was an interesting man. He took a look at the mistakes of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and he realized that what kept happening in their empires was all the small pockets of people everywhere kept rising up in rebellion, not wanting to be managed by an overarching empire. And so he started practicing that something that we would call today religious tolerance. In fact, he encouraged local peoples to, to develop their own religions, to have even some of their own leadership in place. And that way, if the people felt that they were governed by their own people, if they were worshipping their own gods, they wouldn't feel like they had to rebel against Persia. And so Cyrus starts going through all the records of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and finding all these people groups everywhere. And he starts sending them home. And he says, go, go worship your gods, rebuild your homes, take care, just send me a little cash. And that's all he wanted. And we find this letter here in Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Remember, the place that had been destroyed. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And then he says this, which I find amazing. And in any locality where survivors may now be residing, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Not only was Cyrus interested in allowing the Israelites to practice their own religion, he was even going to fund it. He said, wherever the people are, wherever they're coming out of, have their neighbors give them stuff. So that when they get back, they can afford to rebuild their temple. Not only that, but King Cyrus even goes into the books. And he looks at all the items that were taken out of the temple originally. And he goes and finds them all, like a checklist, and sends them all back. And they all go home to Jerusalem. Now, did you notice in that proclamation who got left out? You see, the people of the northern kingdom, if we remember way, way back, Israel was divided into 12 tribes. Remember? And the southern kingdom was comprised of only two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. The rest of the ten tribes lived in the north. The people that were allowed to go home were the people in those bottom two tribes. Those people in that southern kingdom. None of the northern kingdom people were allowed to go home. And so there's the people of Samaria watching as a group of people come back from exile, not their own people, to rebuild a city that is more powerful than their capital city in Samaria. And they watch as their brothers and sisters, as their fathers and grandfathers aren't allowed to come home. And what it causes is tension. If you want to understand the animosity that was going on between those two people, Think of modern-day Israel. All right, We had a group of people living in Israel for a long time called the Palestinians. They even called the region Palestine right up until the end of World War II. The Allies got together and said, you know, we have all these exiled Jews from Europe. We can't send them back to places like Germany. That's not okay. 
We need to put them somewhere else. And so what they did was redrew the map of Israel and just plot them right there. Do you think that caused tension? We're still suffering from that tension today. That's what we're talking about here. And for 70 years, they tried to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And for 70 years, they had opposition from the local people around them, from the Samaritans that came down. Sometimes they came down in armed bands and outright attacked the people that were working there. Sometimes they came down and hired Persian government officials to try to stop the process. And you know, they even succeeded for an entire decade. They stopped it. <coughs> but the very first thing that, that the Southern Kingdom people did when they came back is they wanted to reestablish worship. They wanted to get back to the heart of what they were supposed to do. Remember, they wanted to obey the covenant. They wanted God to be their God, and they wanted to be God's people once again. They were getting a second chance. And so the very first thing that they did was built an altar to God right outside where the temple was going to be. And on this altar, they started giving sacrifices to God, worshiping Him, saying, we love you so much, God, here are our gifts to you. And this was a wonderful thing. And then they started building the foundation of the temple, right on top of the foundation of where the old temple was. And the young people were excited, but the people who remembered the old temple and remembered the old way of doing things took a look at it and started crying and wailing out to God that this even happened in the first place. Because they knew that this was just going to be a shadow of what was before. And they were so upset. But the people, they began worshipping once again. Now, after their initial excitement, they started getting bothered by all this pressure that was on the outside. They started giving in a little bit. They started compromising a little bit. They started allowing other things to come in once again. And two guys, one by the name of Haggai and one by the name of Zechariah, came along and tried to reorient the people, get them back on track once again. And so a group of priests come to this guy, Zechariah, who's a prophet. And they come up to him and they say, you know what? We've been doing a lot of practicing over the last 70 years, and we're trying to get this right. Is it okay that we fast? Does everybody know what fasting means? If you don't, it's pretty simple. It means you're going to deny yourself something, often food, in order to focus on God. They say, this fasting that we're doing, we, we mourn for the past. Is this okay? Can we keep doing this? This is what Zechariah, who's responding on behalf of God, says. He says, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth, seventh months of the past 70 years, was it really for me, for God, that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Is this not what God's message has always been to you people? You know, God's trying to say, okay, I'm glad that you rebuilt the altar. I'm glad that you're reconstructing the temple. This is important. But he says to them, when you gather to worship, have you understood yet that you are coming here for me and not for yourselves? This is his overarching message. They say, well, how do we know if we're doing that? How, how can we tell? And in verse 9, he goes on to say this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. And then 
over to chapter 8, he says this, I will return to Zion, and I will dwell in Jerusalem, in the city of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. These are the things that you are to do. Speak truth to one another, and render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other, and do not love to swear falsely. And look how he says this. I hate all these things. You know, if God says, I hate this, that is a very important verse in Scripture. If we want to know where we are standing with God's will, if we want to know if we're right before God, check your behavior against the things that He says He hates. And then in verse 18, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord God Almighty says. The fast of the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love truth and peace. Do you catch what he says? He says, you're doing all these things, are you doing them for me or for you? If you're doing them for me, are they joyful? Are they joyful because you're doing the things that I've asked you to do? You know, he didn't ask them to gather together and to, to offer sacrifices and praise songs and all those things in that spot and practice justice and mercy and, and all that stuff in that one spot. He says, go out and practice justice and mercy and grace and peace. Tell the truth. Be honest people. And then when you come together to do these things that I've asked you to do, they will be a joyful time. They will be a time of praise. Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, when they have all this tension that's between them, hundreds of years of pent-up tension between the two people, he says, we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. The place where God dwells is called true. The place where God dwells is holy. He describes it as the city of truth, the holy mountain. That is where God is. All he has asked us to do is live in his spirit. To do the things that he's asked us to do. To, to be merciful. To be peaceful. To be honest. And when we gather together to sing songs and to pray and to listen to the word of the Lord and to go out and have cups of coffee together in the name of Jesus, all these things are to be done as people of truth. And then our worship becomes pure. God has called us to worship, and i got to ask, every Sunday morning when you come here, are you ready to worship God? I ask myself the same question. Have I been a man of peace? Have I been a man of truth? Have I been one that administers justice to people? Am I a loving person? These are the things that God has asked me to do. These are the things that as a Christian your life should show more and more every single day. And when we come together and sing fantastic songs like the one we just sang, when we hear prayers that are centered in the Lord,
change us? Are those words true? Is there something that blocks us from that? There's no easy answer. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do right now. I feel the need to go before the Lord and just admit as a group, if it's alright with you, that we're not 100% perfect. That sometimes we come here with inappropriate attitudes. Sometimes we come here and gather and sing songs and pray prayers without even God on our minds. Let alone in a spirit of truth. Is that alright? Can we do that right now? Let's pray. Lord, we come before you as a humble people. You are God. And you are holy and mighty and awesome. And Lord, we are so guilty of sometimes coming before you without the right attitude. Lord, I ask your forgiveness for those days that we come in a dishonest spirit. I ask for your forgiveness for all the times in the past that we've stood before you and proclaimed your name above all other names and yet had no intention of doing that in our lives. God, we ask that you look deep into us, that you take those things in us that are sinful and gross and disgusting, and we pray that you pull them out. We give them to you, Father, as some sort of sacrifice. We give them to you as a, as a moment of praise and worship of you. And we know that you have forgiven us. We know that you have, you have come to us and you have chosen us. We know that, that when we believed in your name, you have saved us despite all of these things. And so we praise your name all over again for that, Father. I thank you so much for the love and the mercy that you have shown me every single day. And I know everyone here is thinking the same thing. God, you are full of grace and love, and you want to see us succeed, and you have made every effort in order to allow us to do that, and we thank you. And God, we have gathered here to celebrate your name, and I pray that our celebration of you is honest and pure, and I pray that your name is glorified today. I pray that, that you know that we love you. We thank you for your son. One of the things that God has given us to do to celebrate this fact that we're forgiven is He's given us some simple symbols. A very simple meal, a piece of bread and a little cup of juice. And He said, as long as you gather together in my name, as long as you do these things, you will remember the sacrifice that I made on your behalf. And we get to celebrate as a forgiven people together. In a moment, some servers are going to come and they're going to pass out those pieces. I ask you to take them and hold on to them. A song is going to be played. Just listen to the words and allow these words to 